Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 63. It is January 16th. Did I get it right? You did. It's January 16th, and we are ready to talk about the amazing events of the present and what might be in store for us in the near future. So how does that sound? All right, let's do it. That sounds good. All right, good. Uh, let me just see. Are there any things that we need to cover up front other than the general cat madness that is surrounding <laughs> us? And uh, if we are attacked, please call 911 on our behalf. Yeah. Um, uh, just the usual. We have, Apparently, there's already a lot of Super Chat uh, questions coming in. Uh, we appreciate those. We try to answer as many as possible in the second hour, which will not be uh, hearable for those of you who will be listening in later as a podcast. Uh, but for those of you tuning in uh, on YouTube, you can see that in the second video uh, from the same uh, from the same day. And great. And if you else? are listening on the podcast version, check out the YouTube version. You might right. like the Q and A. It's pretty exciting. We look forward to it. And uh, anyway, so there's a lot more material there. So should we give people a sense of where we're going? Yeah, let's do that. So you're gonna you're gonna start, <clears throat> and um, you're gonna you're gonna start with some uh, political suggestions. I would say apolitical suggestions, but yeah, that's the general area. Apolitical suggestions? Yes, apolitical. Uh, <laughs> a, not singular, because suggestions, of course, is plural, mm. but uh, like above politics. I see. Uh, Non-ideological, apolitical suggestions for how we might... Apolitical suggestions. Right. Got right. it. Okay, yes. Okay, well, Oh, that's... you thought it was like anharmonica or something? Mm -hmm. No, it's, uh, it's apolitical suggestions. Fair enough. All right. Um... So uh, you're going to start there. Then we're going to talk a little bit about a, um, a paper that just came out uh, suggesting some kind of dire news about COVID. And we're going to look into that paper and uh, figure out what it means and, uh, and what it suggests about what we should be doing. And uh, uh, talk a little bit, little bit maybe about uh, some vaccine deployment in some other parts of the world and um, maybe spend some time talking about eagles. Yeah, I think we should uh, we should do that. Actually, it, I think it actually fits perfectly as a sort of bookend for the other the other part of the apolitical. They being apolitical, yes. Yes, yeah, eagles being fiercely apolitical. Mm -hmm. I mean, ferociously almost. Mm. Aggressively. Aggressively and mm -hmm. bloodthirstily apolitical. I would say. Mm -hmm. Certainly, the uh, the rodents that they hunt would feel that way. Yes, full of blood. Mm -hmm. Rodents are. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, well. I think we can avoid it no longer. Uh, here is what I want to talk about. And I, I do this with, um, I think, a certain amount of trepidation, but I don't think there's uh, really anything else to be, to be done. So I've been, like everyone else, wrestling with the question of where we find ourselves in the aftermath of what I think was clearly um, an insurrection on the part of most of the people. Uh, that is a self-diagnosis, I would say, or consistent with the self-diagnosis of many of the people who stormed the Capitol. For those who want to know more about what it looked like on the ground, I would advise uh, people check in with the interview I did with Jeremy Lee Quinn, who was a journalist who was not only on the ground at the Capitol, but went into the Capitol and reported firsthand. He's got fascinating stuff on his website, and you can get a real sense for what it felt like on the ground, which is something that is missing from most of the, um, the mainstream coverage. Um, but what I see in the aftermath of that event is a lot of people making political moves. That is to say, I see uh, a lot of advocacy for various positions. Some of the positions I think are um, in the interests of the nation, but I see 
most of the motivation that appears to be driving people, even to suggest things that I would agree with, appears to be about jockeying for position in a very traditional way. And I don't think that's appropriate given where we find ourselves here at the beginning of 2021. So I wanted to take a little bit of time to speak to what I think is um, the patriotic center. I've said many times I'm not a centrist, um, but the center is where we meet to discover the or to discuss the interests of the nation and to figure out where to go. And this, if there was ever a time when we need to meet in the center and discuss what is in our collective interests, it's now. Um, so what I see is that we are faced with um, various exotic remedies to a situation. I would say the three exotic remedies uh, that seem to be present are the 25th Amendment, uh, impeachment, which has already happened, and pardons. Those are the exotic remedies. And then there's a question about how they might be wielded and to what end. And of course, each of them carries various implications for the future. And what I would suggest, in fact, what I think we should demand from our leaders is that they step outside of their tribalistic team allegiances and start thinking about um, what the implications of their actions are going to be. Now, I would say, uh, I would certainly ask that people in listening to my suggestion, my proposal here, that people put judgment aside because we have each been trained to look for evidence that somebody is on the opposing side. And as soon as we get that evidence, we jump. Now, my feeling is what needs to be done here is not going to make anyone perfectly happy, but that um, the most important thing on the table is protected uh, if we act courageously and carefully. So my proposal would be, starting with the impeachment, which has already happened, that the House um, impeach the president. I want to see the uh, Senate come back into session and convict the president. I believe that is not only justified by the merits of the case, but it is also very definitely in the nation's interest. It is in the nation's interest in the sense that if President Trump is not convicted, he remains eligible to run in 2024. And I believe what we will see is a effectively a four-year campaign for Trump to return to office. Now, no matter what you think, about Donald Trump, I would say it is absolutely clear that he is not the person to unite the nation. He did have special skills that allowed him to beat the Republican Party and ascend to the highest office in the land, but he did not have the skills to make use of that office um, to bring us into some new era. And that's uh, tragic, but I think it is very clear and that the insurrection um, at the end of his uh, his term is evidence of that. Um, so to the extent that we may need somebody to escape uh, the duopoly's grasp, it isn't going to be Donald Trump and it won't be Donald Trump in 2024. And um, the idea that we are going to live under the shadow of that possibility for the next four years should frighten all of us. Now, I see Republicans playing with the idea of convicting Trump, but at some level, it's hard to avoid the impression that the Senate Republicans are simply weighing the hazard to them politically of, um, of convicting Trump against the possibility that many consider desirable of being free of his influence uh, over 
the next four years. So I would like to see them convict him, but I would also like to see them do it as a matter of partnership. And frankly, this is what I see missing from the larger discussion, is a partnership between the various players in in this. In other words, I would like to have seen the House collaborate with the Senate. I would like to have seen Democrats collaborate with Republicans. I would like to see the Senate now, um, in partnership with Vice President Pence, agree Donald Trump must be convicted in order that he cannot run in 2024, and because what he did do was encourage, although indirectly, the assault on the Capitol, um, but that Pence, when he assumes the office of president, should pardon President Trump, right? thereby alleviating the potential um, for federal prosecution. Um, that, I believe, is the uh, the route that is best for the nation. I would also argue that, pres that he would then be President Pence, uh, should pardon all of the insurrectionists who did not engage in direct violence against other human beings, as well as the BLM protesters who did not involve themselves in direct violence against other human beings. Now, this may all seem very radical and strange, but there is clear precedent for this. Um, Zach, could you put up the, um, the, uh, it's uh, the Federalist paper, the Hamilton Federalist paper that I sent you. Now I may not be able to read this one of our, yeah, if you can put it up so I can read it, that would be great. Yeah, that's some fine print there. Uh, larger and last paragraph. Okay, so I should say I was pointed to this by a friend of ours, Ram Ramsey Rammerman, who is a lawyer um, and quite well-schooled in this. Um, he points me to this last paragraph of what is Federalist 74. Is that right, Zach? Does it say that at the top? Scroll back up. It's Federalist 74 from 1788. And so Hamilton says, uh, on the other hand, when the sedition had proceeded from causes which had inflamed the resentments of the major party, they might often be found obstinate and inexorable. When policy demanded a conduct of forbearance and clemency, but the principal argument for reposing the power of pardoning in this case to the chief magistrate is this, in seasons of insurrection or rebellion, there are often critical moments when a well-timed offer of pardon to the insurgents or rebels may restore the tranquility of the commonwealth, and which, if suffered to pass, uh, if suffered to pass unimproved, it may never be possible afterwards to recall. Mm. What he is saying here, so this, the entirety of this, he writes as uh, pub, uh, Publius here, which is a shared um, gnome de plume of several founders. What he is saying here, the purpose of this Federalist paper is an argument for vesting the power of the pardon in the single chief executive. Now, in part, so I'm going back through history I don't know terribly well, but in part, Shea's Rebellion, which bears some striking resemblance to certain things that have taken place actually on both sides of the political spectrum in the last year, Shea's Rebellion was a uh, an insurrection that was um, the result of uh, essentially soldiers, most especially Shays, 
um, who found themselves in a debt crisis, not being and not having been paid for their military service. And the result of that insurrection, which was put down by a private army, there was no federal army, um, the result of that insurrection was to reveal to many of the founders the need for a strong central authority. And Hamilton here is arguing, in part in response to Shea's rebellion, that the power of the pardon is best vested in an individual rather than a committee. And his point effectively is, uh, it's actually parallel to one that you and I have made on the podcast in various places about things like parenting, which is that a system, in order to work well in light of a vast array of possibilities that can't be foreseen when you build it, has to have discretion, right? Parents mm -hmm. cannot just simply lay down rules that result in children growing up well. You have to have discretion about when, you know, to inflict harsh punishment, when to, uh, to resist that urge. And so Hamilton is making the argument that the interests of the nation involve a single individual who is poised at a particularly critical moment, like the one that we face right now, to deploy the pardon to relieve the pressure that might otherwise tear us apart. And his point is, if you let that moment go, you may never get it back. That's mm. what he's saying in that, in that paragraph. This certainly seems like such a moment. And uh, the, the tensions on both sides are incredibly high. And... And people who have not been engaging in the riots and violence on either side, uh, whatever tribe to which they think they belong, uh, are fairly eager to keep their anger alive and demand vengeance. And this would be a way of preventing such vengeance and of intentionally and permanently putting it in the rearview mirror, putting the possibility of such vengeance in the rearview mirror. Yes, taking many things off the table. Now, it is complicated by the fact that, it, that a pardon of any of these folks only would immunize them from federal prosecution, but it could be done mm -hmm. uh, in such a way that it would invite the states to follow suit. Um, and I would advocate for that. And in effect, this um, does mean that people who have clearly committed criminal acts uh, would in effect get away with it. But what I would suggest is that this be done in tandem with a, um, a, an agreement that the rule of law must stand, it must be enforced, it cannot be enforced differentially, and therefore uh, it should come with a uh, no-tolerance policy for violence, rioting, insurrection going forward, mm -hmm. right? That is to say, we relieve the pressure with amnesty. And I should say, Shays himself was pardoned. There were a, uh, it's not as clear as everyone involved in his rebellion, which was, I think, 4,000 people. Uh, they were not all pardoned. But in general, all but a few received clemency of one kind or another. So, Again, this is precedented. And were we to find ourselves in a situation where President Pence had partnered with the Congress, we had eliminated the threat of living under a four-year campaign of Trump potentially returning to office, Trump and his supporters would also effectively be protected from the spectacle of federal prosecutions of Trump going forward, which are likely to occur under Democratic rule. Mm -hmm. So um, all of these things would serve to relieve the pressure. I, I have the sense you had something you wanted to add there. 
I mean, there, there are a number of things to say. I guess one one concern, obviously, is that this would, I believe, do as you suggest and would relieve the pressure at the governmental and legal level. Um, but as we talked about last week, a lot of what we're seeing is extra governmental action um, by private corporations who are effectively acting uh, as you know, in the public good in their own eyes in censoring, for instance, the Trump, the Trump, <laughs> the president and and others who uh, who the tech companies imagine are dangerous to discourse and civilization. Uh, I agree. And obviously, there's a lot to be discussed there. And we should come back to it. Uh, it will probably take weeks of looking at different sure aspects of the puzzle, but there is an awful lot to be said there. But I would say to the extent that what we have is a ferocious, powerful, and new weapon in the hands of a um, strangely aligned uh, industry that has a very clear political bent, the last thing that we want to see is that apparatus um, liberated to behave in an authoritarian way by the fact of Trump attempting to regain the office in 2024. And frankly, I think almost as frightening as the prospect of the four years under that is the prospect of the trials unfolding in public view. So to the extent that we can relieve this pressure, we also relieve the justification that the tech sector will use in order to crack down on voices it doesn't like. I guess I'm not sure... I'm not sure about your use of the term liberating. I don't think uh, the the tech companies need any liberation to do what they want. Clearly, you know they they feel they already feel plenty free to act as as they desire. Um, what I do think this could do, which could um, very much help change the conversation and alleviate some of the um, some of the ramping up that is happening, is um, by taking Trump out of the equation you immediately remove and put, again, in the rearview mirror, the single source of anger and ire that, um, you know, call it half, <laughs> call it half of America has, and I don't think it's actually fully half, but, you know, um, half of America has for, um, for someone, and they have pinned, so many people have pinned, um, and it's the opposite of hopes, like all of their dismay and their imagine, you know, the source of everything wrong in the world on this guy. And that's not fair, right? Um, you know, he's he's definitely culpable for a lot of stuff, but that's not fair. And um, and yet, you know, I, I was I was literally walking around uh downtown Portland uh this this week and overheard two different conversations between two different sets of it turns out to have been young women assuming their gender, um, in, in, in all these cases. Um, but you know, four total of four, four women who were just gleeful in their, you know, in their rage. And they imagined, um, deserved rage at the second impeachment, which had just happened. Um, I think just, just then is at the point that I was walking around and, I thought, what happens? You know, what happens to their conversations and what happens to their personalities and what happens to their um, imaginations and plans for the future at the point that the single enemy in their world goes away? We can hope that some number of these people actually uh, return to a semblance of thinking more clearly, uh, more broadly about a range of issues. Now, I don't think, I, you know, listening to your conversation with Jeremy Lee Quinn, your, your second one, the, the almost three-hour one um, that was just posted last week, um, you know, he says um, there, you know, there are plenty of people, 
He doesn't say there are plenty of people. He says there are those who are arguing really for anarchy and for destruction at any cost. It doesn't matter from whom or for what. It doesn't matter. So those people will not be appeased. And and those people are very dangerous. And they've been very active on the so-called left since the beginning of the summer. And he was suggesting somewhat present also in the insurrection on the Capitol last week, uh, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago. Um, so you know those people won't be helped by this. But there are a whole lot of people who are just so focused on the one enemy that if you take away that enemy, maybe they could recover. Well, yes, I think this is uh, this is central, which is that these fringes are driving the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so two things have to be true. You know, I hope it was clear in what I said at the top that um, amnesty for what has happened in the past coming with a an insistence on the rule of law going forward is key. And I would point out rule of law is the apolitical way of saying this, that Trump has politicized the question by saying law and order all the time, which is typically a right-wing uh, thing. But rule of law is something we all ought to be able to agree on. It is essential to the functioning of our society. Actually, someone, um, I think I saw in, in our Q&A last week, a question we hadn't gotten to, a suggestion that uh, rule of law and law and order were wrestle conjugations of one another. So this I'm, is basically what you've what you've just said. I believe they are. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they were. I, I mentioned this on the trigonometry podcast mm. uh, just right after the, the insurrection had happened. But um, so I want to make a couple last points, mm -hmm. one of them quite uh, concordant with what you just said. Um, so the fringes are indeed driving the conversation for others. And it occurred to me, actually, it occurred to me listening to Eric on um, the Hill program Rising uh, a couple days ago, maybe it was yesterday even, um, he mentions uh, what he calls Magistan and Wokistan. And these are the two fringes in question. And it occurred to me um, that something uh, I have been saying since the beginning, since before uh, Trump was elected, that the problem with this slogan MAGA is that it is intentionally polarizing and it's the second A in MAGA that does it. it. The idea that America should be made great again suggests all sorts of things. It suggests that it has been great. Now, I think it is a country with a tremendous amount of greatness to it, but I don't think it has ever been great for everybody. I don't think it's ever been great for blacks. I don't think it's ever been great for Indians. And until it's great for everybody, it isn't great. It's a prototype of great. So the, by saying again, it sort of suggests that we had it and somebody screwed it up and now we're looking for villains. But what occurred to me in hearing Eric invoke uh, Magistan and Wokistan was that it is the exact um, desire to misunderstand the past all the way, to turn your misunderstanding to 11 in one of two directions that creates these um, yin-yang fringes, right? So the MAGA folks are trying to get us back to somewhere that we never were, right? And the Wokistan folks are... Uh, essentially arguing that this country is bad at its core, that that's what it was founded to do, that there is no possibility of making it great. Therefore, tearing it down is the only uh, reasonable action. And the point is both of these things are equally crazy, right? The country was never great in the sense of great for all populations. It certainly has marched a long way in that direction. We have made tremendous progress, but we're not there. And it is reasonable to demand that we get there. It is not reasonable to want to go back. And it is not reasonable to tear it down on the basis that it's such an evil place um, that we will almost inevitably do better if we try again. That's 
utter nonsense. So recognizing the insanity of these two positions and therefore the necessity to alleviate their control over the discussion. How do we alleviate their control? By sidelining them at this moment and saying, okay, what's happened has happened. What must happen going forward is the law must be enforced, um, irrespective of who it is who's breaking it. And, you know, that period of relief makes a great deal of sense. I guess um, I'm I'm just I'm surprised I'm this guy at this point, but um, I'm concerned that alleviating uh, the the pressure, taking away some of the remaining power insofar as it exists, excuse me, from the MAGA people leaves much of the power that is, like I said, extra governmental. And of course, there's plenty of governmental power as well um, among the the Welco standers, uh, if you will, that um, that not just the tech the tech companies, but obviously media and and much else, and you know, in corporate America, are at least um, virtue signaling. You know, putting up their you know whether it's don't hurt me walls, or they actually have people in their um, in their HR departments who believe this stuff, or anything in between, from academia to um, to corporations to media. Um, the 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 majority of what we are expected to believe is very much slanted towards Wokistan rather than Magistan. And, you know, we're arguing we shouldn't have either. But, um, you know, how how is it that we actually disempower both of those things? Well, I think this is a, a great point, and I think um, it ought to be our focus. But in part, I think we also need to understand that we don't exactly know <clears throat> why we are where we are. In other words, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that has, you know, the tech sector, which is ostensibly a bunch of corporations in competition with each other, behaving as if they are one monster. Yeah. Um, we don't know exactly what the interaction is between that entity and our governmental structures. For one thing, we've in part lost control of our governmental structures. There's the part we can see and there's the part we can't. And actually this brings me to what I would say is the last piece of the puzzle that I would hope to see um, deployed in the next uh, few days before um, before the uh, the inauguration, which is I would hope to see the pardon of Snowden and Assange. Um, now, Snowden, I would say, is a national hero for what he did for bringing uh, transparency where there was authoritarianism uh, and uh, opacity. Um, it's harder to say that about Assange because he's not an American. But nonetheless, I would hope to see those pardons. And frankly, you know, if if I had all of the cards to play mm-hmm. of all the various players, I would probably have Trump pardon them before he is mm-hmm. convicted by the Senate as an indication that actually, you know, he uh, he is willing to do his part for the well-being of the nation, even mm-hmm. even in his uh, wounded condition. So um, anyway, I don't know what will come of this. I frankly expect nothing will come of it because these actors are so political. They're dyed-in-the-wool partisans. And so the idea that they would ever do anything that wasn't justified by its immediately elevating them relative to their competitors is almost hard to imagine. And at some level, partisanship is the opposite of patriotism. It is. Mm -hmm. That's very well said. It is the opposite of patriotism. Patriotism is about putting your interests aside in the interests of something larger, a nation, for example. Um, And so uh, it's a rare commodity these days. But um, 
who knows, maybe they will surprise us in a positive direction. If nothing else, they should look at the prospect of a future lived under the cloud of either a four-year campaign by Trump to regain the office or a long series of highly publicized and charged trials of uh, President Trump. Neither of those things are going to leave us better off as a nation. And anybody who yep. says otherwise is uh, is a liar, frankly. Yeah. All right. All right. I think uh, I think we've reached it. Okay. Um, next section, then. Oh, and my computer chooses this moment to fail. Um, so, a new paper came out this week uh, finding that asymptomatic cases of COVID account for possibly half of all new infections. Uh, let's just, um, so if you're a, uh, longstanding listener of this podcast, you will recognize that is a shocking conclusion for a paper. Yeah. Uh, Zach, can you put my screen on for a moment? So here it is. It's in, um, JAMA network open. I, I found it through, um, I'm in the, I guess it's the weekly JAMA. JAMA is the journal of the American Medical Association newsletter. Um, and they had this, uh, they they had this in the newsletter, and it's got over 200,000 views at this point, which is a crazy high number for a scientific paper. But we were talking about over dinner last night. We don't know what views means here. So I, I guarantee you 200,000 people haven't studied this paper in the kind of depth that I have, for instance. No, but in light of the fact that it's JAMA, right? Journal of the American Medical Association carries a lot of weight. It's, mm -hmm. it's a high clout location and that they are broadcasting on their website, even if that's just people who have clicked through and seen this conclusion deployed under that banner, that is an amazingly powerful fact. Yeah. And so here, let me actually, just before I say something about what the paper finds, um, the, the sections of a scientific paper are generally abstract introduction methods or methods of materials, results, discussion, and then references cited. So the abstract is the summary, the author's summary of what it is that the paper finds. The introduction sets up the, uh, the extant research, the background research, and the theoretical framing for the work that they're doing. The methods or methods of materials, whatever, describes exactly what it is that they did, um, hopefully with enough detail such that someone else could go in with the methods and redo their work um, and thus uh, effectively replicate that work. The results is um, just supposed to be a description of what they found. The analysis, you know, having then done what they described that they were going to do in the methods, they did that you know, offsite, and then they describe the results, including the analysis, the statistical analysis of the results. The results is not supposed to include any interpretation. And then the discussion is exactly the interpretation. You sort of come full circle and you say, you know, given what we thought we knew, given what our hypothesis was, hopefully, um, you know, what is it that we found and what do we make of it in light of the other things that we know to be true? And then the references cited is just that. All the references that uh, were cited um, to, uh, you know, in a paper like this um, to make the sorts of decisions for how it was that they were assessing background numbers. So in this case, the abstract is um, a fairly detailed, so here you can show my screen again, Zach, um, is, is actually split up into several sections. And in the results section, uh, they have, no, no, in conclusions and relevance, rather, in this decision, analytical, in, sorry, in this decision analytical model of multiple scenarios for proportions of asymptomatic individuals with COVID-19 and infectious periods, transmission from asymptomatic individuals was estimated to account for more than half of all transmissions. In addition to identification and isolation of persons with symptomatic COVID-19, effective control of spread will require reducing the risk of transmission from people with infection who do not have symptoms. 
These findings suggest that measures such as wearing masks, hand hygiene, social distancing, and strategic testing of people who are not ill will be foundational to slowing the spread of COVID-19 until safe and effective vaccines are available and widely used. So let me say just with regard to that last sentence that regardless of what else might be true about this paper, um, we have been since our very first live stream in late March at the point that uh, the WHO and the Surgeon General had, um, you know, were recently arguing that mask wearing was not useful at all, um, you know, advocating for mask wearing and hygiene and, you know, social distancing and all of these things, right? Um, but this paper effectively claims to have finally done the work that a lot of people have been looking for and um, and has found this really alarming result that um, over half of um, the cases are um, are actually spread due to asymptomatic individuals and they and they they're careful here they specify that there are three classes that there are symptomatic individuals of people who have tested positive there are symptomatic individuals there are pre-symptomatic individuals and there are what they're calling never symptomatic individuals and they're trying to tease apart the pre-symptomatic from the never symptomatic the idea being the pre-symptomatic um, there's really low reason to expect that they will be much less um, uh, transmitting of disease although perhaps somewhat so this is really bad news, right? This is so. It, you said it's alarming, but I also want to separate that from surprising. Um, so again, mm -hmm. people who've watched us will know this piece of logic. But what piece of logic? The the idea that it would be surprising to have a very high rate of totally asymptomatic transmission, and the reason is that the very things that allow a virus to be transmitted are the things that cause symptoms. That is to say, if you imagine, for example, uh, cells in your lung that have been invaded by a virus that are now spilling forth virus to invade other cells and to escape into the environment, then that's a piece of damage in your lung that will cause irritation, will cause mucus, etc. So the idea is, in typically speaking, you would expect symptoms to be correlated with the degree of illness and therefore the degree of infectivity. So this is not only a uh, shocking result at the level of, oh my goodness, this is a very dangerous phenomenon if that's true, but it's surprising at a scientific level. Yeah, it is. Um, luckily for us, the paper is complete garbage. Mm. Um, I mean, it's really actually stunning how much complete garbage is in this paper. So. Um, I could spend several hours going through the garbage nature of the paper, and I'm not going to bore everyone with that. Uh, it is going to be a little bit, um, a little bit numbery here. Um, so you're going to condense down the garbage in this paper, making you a trash compactor. Yeah, that's right. right. That's what I am for today, a trash <laughs> compactor. My God. Um, and <clears throat> so my intention here was not to dunk on this paper. I clicked on this link. Um, in the JAMA newsletter, um, the title, you know, the title again is uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmission from people without COVID-19 symptoms, and uh, and it looks really alarming. And the fact is, I read this. Um, I read this actually as I was making dinner last night, which sounds like a strange thing to do, but it, it was possible given the dinner I was making. And then I read the references that they had used to support their their assumptions, and I came to dinner kind of alarmed. And then I read it again. And then I read it again this morning. And um, it just, frankly, it gets it gets more shoddy, more clearly shoddy the more times you look at it. So well, I'll, hold on. I got to jump in again. Yeah. Um, 
So I also want to point out how unusual that behavior is. Which behavior? The behavior you just described for yourself with respect mm. to this paper. And I just want to say that be, for various reasons, some of them totally mundane, very frequently people end up repeating, they will read an abstract of a paper, maybe they scan what's in the rest, and they will report based on that as if it's true, rather than saying, wow. I mean, in fact, uh, one of my advisors, Charles Handley, um, used to joke, uh, I think maybe it was widely said in his era, may all your abstracts come true, <laughs> right? Um, the idea being that, you know, an abstract is not an indication that the work is necessarily well, I mean, we're this is not at all what we're supposed to be talking about here, but um, I suspect I was not there to hear Charles say that. In yeah. fact, I don't think I ever even met him, but my suspicion is that that was about you having to write an abstract before For a talk. Pre preventing your talk at a conference. So you have to write what you think you're going to find before you've even done the research for a talk that's going to be given nine months in the future. That's true. In yeah. fairness, he was, he was referring to that in the particular case. I will say, though, that the number of times that what is in the abstract is not justified by what is in the paper is alarmingly high. And yeah. therefore, one has to, you know, it's it's one thing if you're looking at somebody whose work you know very well, and mm -hmm. you know that it's careful, and then their latest paper comes out, and you look at the abstract, and you say, this person found that, yeah. right? But it's another thing to just take some piece of work you know nothing about, and assume that what's in the abstract is justified uh, by what's in the paper. It's very commonly not. And yet, as soon as something, especially something sensational, emerges in the form of a title and an abstract... It will be cited and repeated, and there's no way of knowing. Almost what... no one is going to actually have read the paper, much less a few times. Much, much less multiple times, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Much less um, have gone through and figured out the and read the sources that they are citing, which is which is the part where I said, okay, I, you know, I, they're just they're just not doing good work here. So let's go through it as as briefly as possible. So this paper is a model that's then based on um, some combination of empirical research and review papers and models themselves. So what are, what are these terms again, since we've already defined sort of what the parts of a research paper are? Um, a, a model is trying to generate um, a predictive, basically equation or set of equations um, that will reveal something that is true about the universe, having fed in some actual data. And then hopefully the model has enough general predictive value um, that you could take it to a different system, um, either, you know, a different place or at a different time, or maybe even a slightly different, you know, in this case, disease possibly, and say, okay, what, um, you know, what would you have to tweak to have this model continue to be true? Um, so this, pa this paper is just describing a model and the results from a model. There's nothing empirical here. Empirical meaning uh, they went out and they actually took data. They actually measured data themselves, measured, made measurements themselves and brought that data back into the analysis. Um, <clears throat> and then there are also review papers which go into the literature and say, okay, I've got, um, you know, I, I found eight papers that are relevant to the thing that I'm trying to figure out. Let me do a meta-analysis on those and um, see what, if I take them in the aggregate, they might find. So this is a model that's based on some combination of empirical research and review papers and aggregates. So it is a model they have developed from empirical work. Somewhat from empirical work, okay. not entirely from empirical work. But so that's, you know, fair enough. That's, that's done broadly. We have critiqued models and modeling systems in the past, and we will continue to do so. But um, uh, models aren't inherently flawed, right? Um, you just have to understand that it's not the same as empirical research. Um, in the results of the abstract, so again, the results section, and this is not the results section of the paper, but the results of the abstract, the results section is supposed to, in, supposed to include only what it is that they found. 
They say, quote, the baseline assumptions for the model were that peak infectiousness occurred at the median let me start again. The baseline assumptions for the model were that peak infectiousness occurred at the median of symptom onset and that 30% of individuals with infection never develop symptoms and are 75% as infectious as those who do develop symptoms. So they have just told us in the results section, no less, of the abstract that they used assumptions of 75% infectiousness of asymptomatic individuals in building this model, which then popped out the result that asymptomatic individuals are responsible for up to 50% of cases. This is a problem. This is a big problem. So on what basis did they put that assumption of 75% infectiousness of asymptomatic individuals into this model, which pretends, which proclaims to actually find asymptomatic transmission, uh, when what, what we've just been told in the actual results of the abstract is that they, that was an assumption of the model. So in the method section, the actual method section of the paper, they clarified this way, quote, we also made a baseline assumption that individuals with asymptomatic infections are on average 75% as infectious as those with symptomatic infections. Oh, wait, that's not clarifying. That's just a repeat of what they already said, except at least it's in the proper part of the paper now. They're acknowledging that this is the methods. This is something that they actually fed into their model. They then cite for this claim, how is it that they generated this number? 75% of um, uh, asymptomatic individuals are 75% as infectious as symptomatic individuals. This is, again, not a finding of this paper. This is an assumption they use to build the model. They cite references 9, 5, and 15, and 16 to support this. So I went and read references 9, 15, and 16. <clears throat> we'll return there. But uh, in the meantime, before we get there, recognize that everything downstream of this assumption, absolutely everything downstream of this assumption they use to build their model, this assumption that asymptomatic individuals are 75% as infectious as, not, as symptomatic individuals cannot reveal anything about whether or not individuals are actually infectious because they've built that into the model. Everything downstream is suspect. They've built the assumption into their model. In fact, they can't find anything else because they've built it in. It's circular. There, there is no way for them to come to a different conclusion. Absolutely no way. Okay. So their results um, are holding the day of... Um, yeah, actually here, I'm going to show this figure in a minute when I find it, Zach. Okay, here we go. Zach, if you can show my screen. So this is figure one. This is, you know, it seems super mathy and very confusing and all this. Oh, it looks say. very sciencey, yes. Yeah. Um, so figure one, the contribution of asymptomatic transmission under different infection profiles. We are going to, for the moment, actually for the entire duration of this, <laughs> this podcast, um, skip down to the second row, D, E, and F, about which they say panels D, E, and F show different proportions of transmissions from individuals who are never symptomatic. Um, in, in uh, let's see, in D, we have baseline 75% relative infectivity, um, and E, 75% relative infectivity. And in this one, they did change the relative infectivity. So they have changed their baseline assumption here to 100% relative infectivity. They went right up to like asymptomatic individuals. We're just going to assume that asymptomatic individuals are exactly as infectious as symptomatic individuals. And we are going to be shocked, totally shocked when our model produces a result that says that asymptomatic individuals 
are close to as infectious and as symptomatic individuals. How does this pass for science? I just don't, I, I, I cannot, I cannot believe that this got through anything like these scientists' brains or peer review or anything. So, okay, Zach and I have, thank you. Um, how did they arrive at this number, the 75% baseline assumption? And then on what basis are they claiming to have messed with their assumptions, but actually only ever changed it in the upward direction? They only ever decided to look at 75% as infectious as symptomatic cases for asymptomatic or 100%. Those are the only two numbers that they actually looked at. Well, um, the authors themselves say, show in, okay, once more, Zach, if you would, in the method section, this table, key assumptions and evidence informing those assumptions. And here we're going to look at the section right here. Relative infectiousness of individuals who never have symptoms. And here we have these three references again. Lee et al., which is reference nine, they say they looked at 303 patients and found approximately 100% as infectious. Wow. Okay. Okay. That mill then 75% seems like a, a decent estimate. Okay. Cha et al. 2020, which was their reference 15. They, uh, this paper says they looked at 1,701 uh, secondary contacts and found an infection rate of asymptomatic compared to symptomatic individuals of 40 to 140%. Wow. Okay. That's asymptomatic individuals are more infectious than symptomatic individuals, according to this paper. Better go look at the paper. Curiouser and curiouser. Curiouser and curiouser, yes. And then the third reference that this Johansson et al. paper looks at is McAvoy et al., um, which is actually uh, a, a modeling paper itself. Actually, it's a review paper that tries to do some modeling. And they found uh, a mere 40 to 70%. And, and from those three numbers, <clears throat> these authors concluded 75% is about right. So, well, let's see if any of those numbers hold, right? Let's, let's see. What we have in, um, <clears throat> there we go. Um, nope, hold on a sec. Thank you. Um, in Lee et al., uh, what they did was they looked at 303 actual patients in a health center in South Korea. Ah, cool. It's, it's empirical. This paper finds compellingly that viral load and asymptomatic patients is similar to that in symptomatic patients. Okay, and they're not the this is not the only paper actually to have to have found that that viral load is similar in asymptomatic patients and symptomatic patients. But guess what? Viral load is not the same thing as infectiousness or transmissibility. It's just not. It's not the same thing. And the authors of this paper, Lee et al., which are cited by Johansson et al. to support their ridiculous claim that a hundred percent. They, so this Lee et al. paper, Johansson is claiming, claims 100% as infectious for asymptomatic versus symptomatic patients, say, quote, although the high viral load we observed in asymptomatic patients raises a distinct possibility of a risk for transmission, our study was not designed to determine this. Mm -hmm. And under the limitations of their own work, they say, quote, we did not determine the role that molecular viral shedding played in transmission from asymptomatic patients. So takeaway. One of those three references that Johansson et al. find um, doesn't provide any evidence of transmissibility, much less 100%. Okay, that's one. We are going to get through these other two pretty quickly. Reference 15, 
Shaw et al. Uh, it's an empirical paper tracking cases in Brunei following a super spreader event in Malaysia. So Brunei is a small country. There was a, uh, a, a big event, like 16,000 people, a religious event in Malaysia. Some number of people came home to Brunei and a and, you know, small country uh, with a lot of track and trace possible. And so they were actually able to, to look at um, what happened. So another empirical paper that's Pretty well done, actually. I was I was um, pretty impressed with this. It's complicated analysis with a lot of variables, and um, just a reminder that uh, Johansson et al. find um, that this paper found forty to one hundred and forty percent of cases, uh, forty to one hundred forty percent of asymptomatic cases. No. Asymptomatic cases are 40 to 140% as infectious as symptomatic cases. That's what Johansson reports about this paper. Well, what does this paper actually find? It finds that um, in the household setting, which is the only settings where they could find anything statistically significant, symptomatic case patients had 2.7 times the risk of transmitting SARS-CoV-2 as combined asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic patients. Mm. So that's a conservative number. So, you know, again, sorry for all the numbers, but almost three times as much infectiousness in symptomatic patients versus the combined asymptomatic and uh, pre-symptomatic and never symptomatic patients. And when you look further into their paper, you find that, of course, the pre-symptomatic patients are more infectious than the never symptomatic patients. And what you don't find is any evidence for 40 to 140 percent. There's nothing in this paper at all that suggests that asymptomatic patients are more infectious than symptomatic patients. So where are they getting these numbers? Quickly, just the last paper is a review paper, uh, and they, they, they're they're doing it carefully. It's a review through only through April 8th, 2020. So it's you know early in the pandemic, which separates out never symptomatic from pre-symptomatic cases. And um, it's a careful review. And what they do is they say, we can't tell. There's not enough out there yet. The literature is not rich enough. We, there's not enough empirical work. We simply can't tell. And they specifically point to variable definitions of what infectiousness means. And they say, okay, so very tentatively, given that we think that maybe asymptomatics have about a 0.4 to 0.7 rate of infectiousness to that of symptomatics, which is exactly the number that, uh, that Johansson cite here. And if you could just show my screen one more time, Zach, once again, we have these three papers that the new Johansson is basing their, the new Johansson paper is basing their numbers on. Leodol, which was uh, from South Korea, which actually has, um, in my finding, no evidence at all for, trans for transmissibility. And Johansson says approximately 100%. Cha et al., uh, which was the case from Brunei, which, uh, as far as I can tell, shows um, a third or less asymptomatic patients or a third or less infectious as symptomatic patients, and they say 40 to 140% on the basis of which I, I, I cannot even begin to figure out. And McAvoy et al., uh, which is a highly tentative number, says 40 to 70%. Well, that number they actually got right. You can see that here. They actually got that number. They pulled it directly from the paper, and it's, you know, it's right there. So... My conclusion from all of this is that Johansson et al., this new paper, which I expect to start seeing reflected in, um, you know, in the CDC's guidelines and various health 
officials um, recommended behavioral changes um, is that their their baseline assumption of 75% infectiousness of asymptomatic relative to symptomatic cases is completely unfounded. Completely unfounded. And it's possible, but we literally have no evidence for that in the papers that they cite. Given that, nothing in the conclusions of this paper should be taken seriously. No policy should be based on it. And we should seriously question any of the work that these guys are doing going forward, because what the hell were they thinking? So can you go back to the title of the uh, the piece? The the main one? Yeah. Yeah. SARS-CoV-2 transmission from people without COVID-19 symptoms. So I think, A, I'm wondering whether our longtime uh, viewers are having a bit of deja vu, because <laughs> if you allow yourself to squint at this just right, it is very much like the situation. And unfortunately, I didn't realize until we were on the air what the parallel was, so I don't have the name of the paper. But the paper that declared IDW part of a mechanism of online echo chambering mm. um, has the very same nature in which they build yeah. a model yep. that creates a shocking impression of a particular hazard. And when you go back and you scrutinize what it is that allowed them to build the model, it is in fact perfectly circular. They built into the model um, something that allowed them to pull that conclusion out. And in fact, in that case, we had the author of the um, article on which their assumptions were based saying, hey, you've misused my work. Yep. Um, so it is exactly the same form, which then raises, I think, a very interesting question, which is, why is why are we facing an epidemic of this style of science? Who is served by this? Well, who is served by this? Who like? I think either I who are they working for, or why are they this confused, or why are they this bad at actually understanding how it is that you build a model that can produce a result that isn't exactly what you fed into that model? Um, I believe the problem is that we are up against evolution. Um, what's happening here is That's that not there very are, helpful, is it? Uh, it's, it, it ought to properly frighten us and uh, get us to wake up because, mm -hmm. the, you know, first of all, it's mundane, but realize that positions uh, in academia, for example, are um, scarce and therefore competition to get them is ferocious. And the way one gets comp uh, to wins that competition is to publish a lot of stuff, publish stuff that gets cited by others, etc. So in mm -hmm. some sense, there's a niche. If you can say things that people will parrot, you're going to do well. And in fact, we see this. If you look at, you know, citation rates and how they uh, affect getting hired, it's spectacular, even when you're being cited because you're being mocked, right? right? In other words, the fact that your paper is cited a lot by people saying this isn't true doesn't necessarily count against you. So what I'm getting at here is <clears throat> I don't know why this is showing up in JAMA, right? Mm -hmm. That's shocking and dangerous, as you point out, because policy is almost certain to be founded on this. But what I suspect is privately, as we've seen in many different places in the SARS-CoV-2 COVID story, there is a behind-the-scenes consensus about what wise public policy is. Yes. And then the facts are rearranged around it to make it look like it is also in your interest as an individual. And so the idea that um, we have a large amount of transmission from people who never uh, show symptoms, of course, is justifying of a lot of the most draconian measures to prevent the spread of uh, COVID-19. And sure so is. 
In any case, what that means is that people are looking for evidence that we need to do that. Those who have concluded for whatever reason, responsible or not, public spirited or not, those who want to impose those restrictions are looking for things that justify it. And this paper is liable to be uh, confirming of their worldview, correct or incorrect. Mm -hmm. And so in any case, I guess what I'm saying is you've got authors searching for that which the audience demands. And this mm -hmm. is, you know, as uh, politics is the opposite of patriotism, uh, giving the, the audience what it wants is the opposite of science. Science is supposed to tell you what's true irrespective of what you want to hear. This isn't science. It's circular, right? Mm -hmm. The point is it looks like science. It's dressed up as science, and it is presented in a sciencey place, and that is going to be enough to drive policy. Yeah, it sure is. And, um, you know, I, I desperately want the CDC to be awesome, and I used to rely a lot on CDC recommendations uh, when you know when we were doing a lot of tropical field work and trying to figure out what vaccinations I needed for where and um, you know the fact is mosquito mosquitoes don't care about national borders and so if you have yellow fever or you know or Zika or malaria one place it doesn't yeah and you know right next door to one another um, it is one place it's not another place it's really hard to know why that is and the CDC was the CDC's site. Um, and in fact, you used to be able to call and actually talk with, uh, with with people who knew about tropical diseases, um, was really excellent. Um, I don't know to what degree it was always also political. I assume that you know every organization of that size has a has a political arm. But one thing I did not do when I was pouring through this paper and the other papers um, until just now as you were talking is look and see what the author affiliations are mm. of this Johansson paper that just came out. And I am um, disappointed to find that every single one of them are at the CDC. Mm. That none, none of these are actually university scientists. Um, and, you know, of course, the CDC is not just, you know, it has a science arm and it has a policy arm. And, um, and you know, those, those things, there should be a firewall between those things, that policy um, should be informed by science, but science should not be informed by policy. And uh, it seems like you may have a two-way street going on here. Well, so I would also point out there's a difference between what the CDC recommends if you're traveling to X, Y, or Z place, which, you know, was always good information, but it was often always too coarse. In other yeah, words, you exactly. might be going to a region of a country where, you know, there isn't malaria and there would be a recommendation if you're going to the country to, Very much to so. treat yes. yourself for it. But yeah, <laughs> like I'm going to be at 8,000 feet. Like it's not, it's right. not going to be a thing. But in yeah. this case, there's a perverse incentive and we yeah. don't understand it. We don't know who's bidding the CDC yeah. is doing. Now, I would also point out a third connection here. So we've got this style of work, which is on the one hand, totally different than the social science that goes into, you know, scaring people about, you know, right-wing echo chambers and IDW. Yeah. But the point is, okay, those two things look alike because what's going on is the same. There's a hunt for an audience that is hungry to hear something and wants to see it, you know, scientified or what I've called ideal laundering. This is the science version of ideal laundering rather than the critical theory version. Mm -hmm. But the third thing I would say needs to be introduced in this discussion is in fact one of our um we have like a full-time detractor whose name i won't mention but we have a full-time detractor who was um mocking us recently it's weird work if you can get it yeah it's weird work if you can get it indeed mm. but anyway he was mocking us for um 
being skeptical of models when it comes to climate change, but being uh, convinced by things like Yamal Peninsula craters, retreat of glaciers, other things that don't depend on models in order to be able to interpret where we are. And the point is, this is actually the reason. Yeah, of course it is. Models are complex. You can make a model say almost anything and not for the right reasons. In other words, you can get a model to spit out a behavior that looks very much like something empirical, but to do so for other reasons. If you add enough parameters into a model, you can get it to look like what you want. Yeah. And as long as you have the right expression on your face of like enthusiasm and mild surprise at the end, you can become convinced even yourself that you didn't you, just feed your result in to the foundational assumptions of the model. Right. And in fact, this is one of the things I always ask myself when I see a very good fit between a model and an empirical result mm -hmm. is one of two things has to be true. Either it was built into the model, so that's mm -hmm. all they could find, or it's accurate. So it's not that models can't well, be accurate. You know, or the model is so narrow in its parameters that it has very little predictive power outside of those very narrow parameters, right? Like, you know, right. The, 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 more, the more general a model, the less accurate it's going to be. And you have to accept that trade-off when you're assessing whether, you know, just, you know, if you had an actually good model that was actually legitimate and had fed assumptions in that were relevant and you actually, you know, slid those, that number along the entire range of zero to hundred percent, for instance, and, and, you know, and saw what it what it spit out then, um, you still need to understand that the model is going to, as it gets to be more and more generally applicable, it's going to have lower and lower accuracy. That is just an inherent, unbeatable trade-off of, mo of models. Right. right. But the fact that a model is a match doesn't tell you anything in and of itself right. until you do the kind of work you've done here. So anyway, in a general sense, um, models are a place that you can bury any number of bodies. If you want to get X right? As a conclusion, a model is a great way to do it because models are complex. And in fact, they did a very poor job of hiding their bodies here, right? They're they really were findable. Yeah. But were this more complex, more technical, it might've been harder to see the connection. Yep. And so um, in any case, what I would say is we have misunderstood the p-hacking problem, p-hacking being a uh, description of a phenomenon that was discovered far too late. It was obvious that this was going on. Um, especially in psychology, where effectively the p-value, which is a statistical measure that tells you how likely a conclusion is to be meaningful rather than the result of an accidental sampling error, that this was a place that by obscuring negative results and only publishing positive results, you can convince yourself of almost anything, right? If you have two things that don't correlate and you test enough times, eventually you'll get a random result that says they do correlate and you can publish just that one and mm -hmm. nobody else is in a position to even know that the other tests were done. So my point is, why did that happen? Mm -hmm. Because people wanted jobs in psychology and this was a place where the science was very hard to track. Models are the very same thing. So mm -hmm. it's not p-hacking. There's no p-value there. But what there is, is the ability to build in a conclusion in the assumption layer. So we should call it assumption hacking, right? Will there be a problem of assumption hacking in, um, in models? Yes. Where will it be worst? Where the things that are being modeled are most complex, that's one place, mm -hmm. and where there is a political prize to be won if you reach certain kinds of conclusions. Right. Assumption hacking. I like this very, very much. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan, but I, <laughs> right, right. I, I like the term very, very much. This is exactly right. Yeah, I think I think it is right. And so yeah. anyway, uh, beware the models, right? It's not to say, you know, models, a correct model is excellent, but a correct model. And for many complex systems, it's what you're going to have. Well, 
What I would say is a model is not a hypothesis test. A model is a hypothesis. And when you have a model that says X, Y, or Z is true, that tells you, the prediction is, we will also see that in nature. And then you go out and you find it empirically. Mm -hmm. But the number of people who think that you can take a model and test it in the computer, and that this actually saves you the messy work of going out and sampling, sorry, it doesn't. Right, it doesn't. I mean, in, the, in this case, you know, to, to steel man what they were trying to do here, I, I will not attempt to steel man what they actually did. Um, but what they were trying to do was, uh, you know, having, you know, we, we've been in this for a year at this point, you know, and, you know, not all of us have been conscious of being in this, this damn pandemic for a year, but it's been a year at this point. And um, from the beginning, there's been an active question of, is it just when you're symptomatic or is it just when you're symptomatic and if you're going to become symptomatic and therefore if you're testing positive, or is it, you know, everyone who has, uh, is testing positive regardless of whether or not they become symptomatic. Um, who is spreading this thing, that's really going to change how it is that we need to, you know, in, enforce things like lockdowns and such. And uh, it's been it's been a thorny problem to figure out because, because it's a pandemic and these are people and it's giant numbers of them and there are all sorts of parameters. And that that paper looking at 1,700 people in uh, in Brunei was actually remarkable. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't even show you guys the paper, but, you know, they looked at, you know, household transmission versus workplace versus religious transmission. They, you know, they divvied it up by age and by sex and, you know, all of these things. And, uh, and still, it's really, really tough because if someone who has been exposed to like, you know, three people who tested positive then becomes positive, you don't know which of those three people whom they were exposed to they got it from, right? So you just, it, it is, this is actually a very tough thing to know empirically, ah. right? So it's a very tough thing to know empirically. Therefore, this is a place where a good model could really serve to actually uh, pr produce some knowledge that you could then hopefully try to go out and test in small numbers before using it to make policy. Right. And I would point out, if you go back to our very early live streams, mm -hmm. we advocated both uh, at the point that the um, aircraft carrier uh, docked and it's uh, it, it was having a mini epidemic and um, yeah. it, uh, the patients were removed rather than studying them in situ or isolating them from other uh, patients, we talked about the necessity that some small population be tested where these things could be tracked. And I would point out, I suggested, and I think several people pointed out that it was unlikely to be true, that it was unlikely to be possible for uh, security reasons, but that an Air Force base or a, or a military base, an isolated community could be used to study intensively the transmission of these That's things. Right. And in that context, you could actually figure out who got it from whom because mm -hmm. you could use sequencing to figure out which mutations. You could do phylogeny on the various particles floating around in the population and you mm -hmm. could actually figure out who got it from whom and what that therefore means about what kinds of activities are dangerous and which ones aren't. And I think the final piece to this puzzle is, I don't know how this got politicized, right? <laughs> This COVID is, it should be galvanizing, not just for the entire nation, it should be galvanizing for the world. And yet it has been, because it has been dumped into a political landscape, it has been uh, wielded as a weapon. And what we've gotten out of it is piss poor policy. Mm -hmm. And if you had at the beginning said, hey, this is, this cannot be politicized. This is off limits. And you put smart people 
together to figure out how to understand the way this thing works, what policies work best. What you could have done is an analysis where you basically had, you know, you want to minimize the authoritarian uh, uh, moves under the curve, right? So the idea wasn't that's a that's that move is is uh, destructive of rights. The idea is you want to do minimal destruction. So mm-hmm. short term intensive lockdown, for example, outside is safe. Go outside, uh, open the beaches, encourage people to to go outside so they don't go crazy. Outdoor dining, up. right? Whatever it is, you could have gotten very intelligent, highly effective policy, and instead, what we got was a compromise between science and everybody's agenda and the degree to which they could wield power to make it happen. And um, it's killing people. And well, I mean, it did in its in its defense, it did manage to destroy almost everything except the virus. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, uh, it's got civilization back on its heels and, yep. and all of that. Mental health of the entire world, the uh, economic health of all economies, I think. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, that was interesting. Mm, um, yeah. yeah. I wish... So... Uh, I guess retroactively, I want to apologize for the confusing nature of this. I would, you know, I would, if, if I were in a classroom, I would have, you know, I had you know, PowerPoint slides to show you guys and been walking it through somewhat more slowly. But um, the point is, they fed a number that was entirely justified, unjustified into the assumptions of their model and had no business trotting out the results of that model, which said exactly what um, it had to, given what they fed into it. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yes. And in some sense, you could could see this. It's almost like saying um, that uh, many on the far right show no symptoms of being on the far right, and yet we know they are. (laughs) Yes. No symptoms. <laughs> yes, right. indeed. Indeed. Okay. A um, couple more things before we finish up with what you want to finish up with. Um, yep. uh, so Washington Post had uh, a little blurb this week, and I found it this morning. And then when I went back later this morning, it had, it had been taken down. So I now only find this in like the Telegraph, which is paywall in the New York Post. And you know, I don't really want to be putting up the New York Post on here. So I'm just going to tell you, you already know, um, uh, that... Uh, Basically, the, the take-home here is that you should walk your husband if you can't walk your dog. Yeah, yeah. So um, there is, I mean, I guess here's the New York Post. You, you can go ahead and show it, Zach. So again, uh, WAPO had it and they've taken it down. Now, wait a minute. You buried the lead here. That looks like a leash. Um, you think she was just walking a leash? No, no. I think <laughs> she had her husband leashed, or at least that's the implication. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that is, but apparently it was, they, you know, they were both into it. Apparently, <laughs> um, so the idea the, the idea was is a story from oh, I got, uh, Quebec uh, in Canada, uh, where the only uh, way that you were allowed to go outside for some period of time was uh, if to walk your dog, and of course this left you out of luck if you had no dog, and so this woman and her husband decided that she would walk him, and when approached, uh, she claimed that she was just walking her dog, and they got fined, and apparently they you know, yelled at the people finding them that uh, they would happily accept the fine and continue to walk. Uh, I don't know if they were going to walk each other, if they were going to swap, or if she was always going to be walking him. Um, but What I mean, goes it- on between consenting <laughs> schnauzers? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not our business. Nope. Uh, yeah, they should keep it indoors, probably. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, um, but um, the, the, the consenting schnauzers part. But yes. um, I, I mean, I think this is a, a, a 
brilliant response to an idiotic policy decision. Right? Yeah, um, I agree. Right. Like you, you're allowed to go outside to walk your dog because we understand you don't want dog poop in your house. Um, but and you still apparently had to keep uh, keep within a half mile of your home. Like you couldn't just go on long walks. What the hell? Well, yeah, this is this is nuts. And, you yeah. know, you and I are getting hoarse. Uh, shouting <laughs> yes. about how it doesn't, there's no evidence that it gets transmitted outside. Now, I, oh. I will keep saying, caveat, uh, let us make sure that these new strains that appear to be much more um, infectious are not simply ones that have just learned a trick like that, yep. which frankly- Could be. It, it's quite possible. See no evidence of it yet, but, but we're both yeah, looking no for No evidence, yep. but uh, won't be terribly shocked if that's what's going on. So anyway- yeah, which, I, which changes the landscape entirely. And, yes. you know, makes this all much more horrifying, frankly. Yep. Um, okay. Yep. One more thing before um, before we go where you want to go, which is um, the another uh, up, so don't show us yet, Zach. Um, boy, I can't remember where I got this from now. Um I think this is the oh this is the Johns Hopkins newsletter. So I also get a Johns Hopkins newsletter that is mostly doing COVID updates uh, every week, and it does sort of <clears throat> um, counts uh, both cases and deaths across the world, and then talks about some of what's going on regionally. Um, and in Oceania, <clears throat> here you can show now, Zach. Um, just the top paragraph: Australia and New Zealand have both demonstrated. This is from this week, uh, the fifth. I, I, I wanted to say the fifteenth, but it's not the. Yeah, I think it was from yesterday, the 15th. Australia and New Zealand have both demonstrated the ability to effectively contain their respective COVID-19 epidemics. Considering their success in limiting transmission, both countries are reportedly delaying their vaccination campaigns until mid to late February. This extra time will allow health and regulatory officials to gather more information on the efficacy and safety of the various SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and vaccine candidates. Additionally, the delay will provide both countries an opportunity to better prepare their distribution plans. Um... I think this makes the governments of Australia and New Zealand uh, fascists, or at least anti-vaxxers. Does it not? Uh, interesting question. Uh, to me, it, it makes them sound uh, quite reasonable. Quite reasonable. Like they have actually done a good job on the front end, unlike, for instance, the United States, of controlling transmission. And as a result, they have a little bit more leeway to say, you know what? Let us hold off because these vaccines are brand new. And no matter how safe you say they are, we simply cannot know. That is something that apparently is what Australia and New Zealand have said, and they're allowed to do that. So so should the rest of us be allowed to have those conversations and have those questions. We should be allowed to have those conversations. Of course, we're in a different, yeah, as you point out, we're in mm -hmm. a different circumstance because the control has been uh, uh, poor, to say the least. To say the least, um, yep. So which actually brings us to um, the second to last thing, uh, which is, Zach, would you put up the uh, New York Times article I sent you on the COVID vaccine death? So I wanted to point something out here, and I'm, I want to be very careful that people don't overinterpret it. Um, this is a news report of a death that looks very much like it was caused by uh, the Pfizer vaccine. And I don't say that casually. I, in this article, uh, an expert who was not involved in the case says it basically it's hard to avoid the impression that this was a direct causal link between this doctor's death and the vaccine that he had gotten 16 days earlier. 
Now, okay, so this is a doctor who has died apparently from the vaccine. Now, in and of itself, I don't think that necessarily means anything. Many people are dying from COVID. We should expect there to be a certain number of uh, strong reactions. People's physiology varies quite a bit. And so in and of itself... Every medicine should be expected to have some extreme adverse effects on hopefully a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people who are receiving that medication. Uh, that you know, a, a number, an anecdote, doesn't say anything about uh, frequency or you know, risk risk to right. others. And in fact, Zach, would you put up the uh, COVID vaccine tracker site that I sent you? Nope. There it is. Um, so we have uh, you know numbers that this death should be. Uh, put in the context of. So we have um, almost 38 million doses have been distributed in 49 countries, um, 2.41 million doses per day. In the United States, we've got uh, 13 million shots, almost a million doses are administered per day. So these are very large numbers. And one person's death you know, is certainly shocking and should give us pause, but it's not, in comparison to those numbers, it is not... Uh, reason to panic. So However, you're, you're not bringing it up for, for that reason. Right. I'm not bringing it up for that reason. But if you'll go back to the uh, news report, and if you could enlarge it a little bit and scroll down. Okay. So here it is. Shortly after receiving the vaccine, Dr. Michael developed an extremely serious form of a condition known as a, acute immune thrombocytopenia. Uh, which prevented his blood from clotting. Effectively, my this is a new disease to me, but my understanding is that it is effectively the immune system attacking a component of the blood clotting. The blood clotting is a very complex phenomenon that involves a cascade of things, platelets being uh, the uh, beginning of the cascade where platelets are broken open, spilling out uh, chemicals that trigger this cascade that results in clotting. So effectively, some... Uh, a catastrophic failure of his clotting ability uh, ensued in the aftermath of his getting the vaccine, and ultimately he died of it. But the reason I raise it is because when we were talking about these new mRNA vaccines, and the Pfizer vaccine is one of the newfangled mRNA vaccines. Two or three episodes ago. Two or three episodes ago, we were talking about what we don't know. Now, mm -hmm. what we don't know is anything at all about the long-term effects of these vaccines because there hasn't been a long period of time since anybody has had them. And so whether or not they turn out to do any harm of a long-term nature, we have no idea. But is the possibility there? Yes, it's there. Not only because these vaccines haven't been tested in anyone over a long period of time, but because they are on a new platform and therefore possibilities that we could rule out on the basis that we've never seen X, mm -hmm. Y, or Z platform do that before, we can't rule out here because these things are truly novel. Or at least have much higher certainty that it wouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. Right. So what I do want to point out is that in talking about what could be downstream, and in my opinion, virtually anything could be downstream long-term. We don't know what it means. And the mm -hmm. fact is there's enough novel about these uh, vaccines um, that, uh, you know, and we're talking about a complex system, the human body. Um, we really don't know what's going on. But one possibility is that a vaccine like this could interact with the immune system and cause an autoimmune disorder, right? That would be a big frightening problem. Now, this is one death, mm -hmm. but that is an autoimmune disorder. And yeah. so my point is just simply proof of concept. Can these vaccines cause an autoimmune reaction up through the level of being fatal? 
apparently. I mean, you know, of course, Pfizer is saying it's not connected. Well, Pfizer is doing what it has done from the beginning, which is effectively using careful scientific language to suggest safety. In other words, yes, we cannot establish anything on the basis of uh, one death, even if it's conspicuous, um, the connection. And so um, what I would say uh, is we don't know. It is also the case that this very same disorder can be caused by COVID itself. Mm. Um, now, the cases, I believe, all of the cases that have been witnessed, and it's not a huge number, um, but all of the cases of this uh, disorder that have been uh, seen following people contracting COVID have not been fatal. Some of them have been serious. Um, but in any case, we are dealing with a complex system. The I immune system is a, is built to deal with anything novel that it runs into. And so this is an obvious possibility, and it's something that we need to track. We need to be thinking about what the long-term dangers are here. And the example of Oceania deciding to wait a little while and see what turns up is wise, especially if you've done the front end part right, you've mm -hmm. not allowed this to get politicized and you've deployed good policy, you can afford to wait. Yeah, good good for them. Um, they had an easier time than a lot of countries because they're um, the opposite of landlocked, right? Because they have entirely water borders. Um, uh, of course, the US is, you know, does not have entirely water borders, but uh, it is an easy, should have had an easier time um, than, say, some of the countries in Europe, although the sheer size and scope of the United States makes things more difficult. Yeah. Well, if you'll think back to the early part of the, uh, the epidemic, there was talk about effectively uh, preventing people from crossing our borders, and it was treated uh, as, um, as sinophobic. Um, yeah, well, and at this point, yeah, our American passport has never been worth so little as it is right now. Yeah. 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 All right. I think we've got one final thing. Yeah, we do. So um, I wanted to relay a little story that I'm aware has no actual uh, meaning. It has symbolism to it that has no meaning. The story itself has some meaning to me, but I just wanted to, to mention it. Um, so my... Uh, Kids and I have been um, riding, in fact, all of us have, during the summer, ride through a, a cemetery nearby, a beautiful cemetery, actually. It's shocking how nice the cemetery is. Um, so my feeling about it is, uh, you know, if you have to be dead, and I'm not saying you do, but if you have to be dead, this wouldn't be a bad place to do it. Yeah. It's just, it's very beautiful. It's, it's giant too. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's not like we seek out the cemetery and hang out there. It's really, really large and it gives us access to the river on the other side of Portland. And right. This. And in fact, um, you know, people mock Portland a lot these days, but because it's Portland, um, there is a desire to facilitate things like bicycling. And as improbable as it sounds in a litigious society, the uh, cemetery allows people to bike through it to get from the highlands in the southwest down to the lowlands down to the river. And in fact, it's the only good way to do it, mm -hmm. right? Everything else is dangerous and trafficy, and through the cemetery is quite beautiful. So anyway, it's, it's uh, whenever we uh, uh, make that transition, we go through it. So you and often one of our boys have been doing that um, consistently, um, even as the weather has gotten terrible. Yes. And I, it's probably been since October that I've gotten on my bike and done it. Yeah, I force myself to do it even in the winter. But yeah. anyway, so there has been for, I don't know, I don't know how long they've been there, but I've been aware for seven or eight months. I'm sure they've been there a lot longer than that. There's been a pair of bald eagles that uh, is frequently visible in a tree 
uh, on this route. And I always check in with them. Um, and uh, anyway. We even named them. Yes. Well, I didn't name them. I just, uh, I'm following suit. I believe they are Mitch and Fiona, mm-hmm. a pair of bald eagles. And they raised a chick uh, this summer. Um, but in any case, whenever I go through, I check to see if I can find them. And uh, I took Toby some time back, and uh, he actually found the nest that they were in, a totally different tree, a beautiful giant. High, 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 high up. Oh, quite high yeah. up. Beautiful uh, eagle, airy. Um, you know, if you've seen an eagle nest, it must be eight feet across, very large limbs and all. Anyway, beautiful eagle's nest. And so I just check in with it every time I go through. And I was, uh, on the day of the impeachment, I was riding through the cemetery and I was looking and I couldn't find it. And, you know, there are a lot of trees, so I figured I don't just forget exactly where it is. And uh, as I got closer and closer, I realized it wasn't there. And um, the tree had actually collapsed this eagle tree. I mean, we, we had we had had a massive storm with, you know, flooding yeah. and, um, you know, the, the 84 and the 101 were underwater. Like there, there was a massive storm that we had experienced. So yeah. it's not, it, it didn't just collapse all of a sudden on a bluebird sky day. No, no, it didn't. <laughs> yes. uh, it was, there was a, a tremendous amount of water flowing off, off the hill. Um, and I was actually, I was uh, on the phone I have a helmet that allows me to talk, and I was talking to our uh, moderator, uh, the Dark Horse moderator, as I was riding. And so she actually heard as I'm discovering that this eagle tree is no more. Yeah, Zach, would you put up the image? So here is an image of the tree having collapsed and destroyed uh, a monument there. Anyway, I was very alarmed um, when I saw this. And, uh, you know, I didn't know if the birds had gotten out. Um, I found the place where the nest would have landed and it was just absolutely obliterated. Um, and, uh, anyway, it was getting dark the first time I saw it and I... So they wouldn't have had, um, eggs or chicks at this time of year. So this is at least the, the right moment for this to fall if it were to not kill any baby eagles. Yeah. And as I was looking around, I spotted one of the eagles and then I watched it for a few minutes, and the other eagle showed up. So they survived. They're okay. Um, and uh, any in any case, I went back the next day with Zach. Um, Zach, you want to show the picture? So I wasn't able to get Fiona. This is Mitch. Um, I can tell because he's smaller, and that's the way it goes in in uh, bald eagles. In, in raptors in general, yeah. Raptors in general, yes. Actually, uh, Dick Alexander, my PhD advisor, uh, was very fond of this um, result that uh, sexual competition tends to make males larger and females smaller, except in species that compete in three dimensions where it goes the other way. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so... Is it is it true in bats? Yes, it is true. It is true in bats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's cool. All of them? I'm not going to say that. Every (laughs) 1,100 species? (laughs) Um, I'm I'm not going to say that. But yes, the ones I'm familiar with, it is true. So anyway, here is this uh, bald eagle. And obviously, the symbolism that one could read into this is uh, tremendous. Uh, On the other hand, um, you know... It's a it's a beautiful bird sitting in a tree at sunset, and uh, you know it is our national bird, and and uh, anyway, quite deserving of that title. So I thought I would point this out, and um, maybe that's it. That's that's gorgeous. He's gorgeous. He is gorgeous. Yeah, I hope I hope he and Fiona 
um, find another appropriate site and begin building straight away. Yes. And if they do find one that I'm able to figure out where it is, I'm going to try to document their mm-hmm. constructing of their, their new nest. Of which um, you and we have you know, some experience, not just when we've actually been in the field, but uh, in our old house, actually in Olympia, we had uh, Stellar's Jays build a nest in a giant rhododendron right outside our bathroom window. And we watched them raise three chicks and fledge them and they all survived. And then the next year, uh, robins took over that same nest and kind of fixed it up, but not really. They were much, they cared much less about the quality of their housing than yeah. the original jays did, and they raised um, I don't remember how many successful chicks. Uh, I think it was three. Three as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's fantastically fun to actually go out into the world and observe things. Um, in order to know what's unusual, you have to have, we were talking about this earlier, you, ha- you have to have a sense of what the baseline is. And so when you first start spending time in nature, you don't, it doesn't necessarily seem as interesting to you necessarily because the, the universally charismatic events are rare. You know, it's rare that you see a fight or sex or something. Um, but there is a ton going on all the time. In order to interpret it, you need to know what is normally going on and whether what you're seeing is unusual. And so you have to have you. you have, the more time you spend outside with your eyes open, the more likely you are to start seeing things that are unusual and fascinating every time you go out. Yes, and in fact, in this case, um, surely this is a phenomenon. You know, trees fall down at some rate. Uh, eagles mm-hmm. put their nests in trees that are large enough um, to <clears throat> give them a good vantage point, which means they tend to be old trees. So this has to be some sort of a hazard that um, the eagles are uh, are having to, to navigate. Yeah. But I would point out, actually, <clears throat> now that you mention it, that we have a second experience at a very different scale yeah. uh, as a family of something very similar, which is um, several years ago, three or four years ago, um, we were... Well, Zach and I were a day earlier. We were in Dunsmere in California. Near Shasta. And, and you joined us a day later. But um, we had gone down, we took a little walk, and we went down by a river, and we had discovered a swallow's nest in a snag. So there was a hole in the snag, and the swallows were flying out of it, presumably collecting insects and coming back and feeding their chicks. And anyway, it was pretty nifty to watch and, you know, it was right up your alley. So the next day we brought you back to see it and we at first couldn't find the tree. And then it became clear that the reason we couldn't find the tree was that it had broken off at exactly the place where the animals had built their home inside this hole and they were still there. Mm-hmm. Right, but now they're in the top of it as opposed to the middle. In of the it. open top of mm-hmm. this tree. So anyway, and presumably they're building of you know that hole nesting <clears throat> does reduce the um, the structural integrity of the material. Yeah, I mean, you know, even so, some birds might uh, excavate a little bit. I don't right. know whether swallows do, um, but even if they don't, just the simple fact of the humidity changes and things. If you bring nesting material mm, in right. there, it's going to capture, uh, right. you know, some humidity. It's going to cause the wood to rot faster. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, there's some question hinted at here, which is, you know, what is the uh, influence of nest destruction, um, you know, on nest building behavior? How good are birds at figuring out yeah. what trees are the best bet? 
Oh, I've got maybe another another segment, another time. I've got this beautiful book on effectively the anatomy of bird nests of all these different kinds of nests that that birds build under different situations. Um, really, you know, different different phylogenies of birds and different different types of nests. And I don't know though how much has been done on the effect of nests on the underlying substrate. Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. And of course, this uh, reflects back to uh, to my work, my dissertation work on um, tent-making bats, mm -hmm. which is very destructive of the leaves that they make. You know, tents are these large understory leaves that the bats cut very precisely so they collapse in a very tent-like fashion. Um, now, if in some plants the leaf, you know, it, it, the plant doesn't have a lot of structure beyond the leaf. And in some other plants, you know, it's one leaf where sometimes bats, a group of them will build in one plant and they will damage a whole bunch of leaves mm -hmm. on the same plant. Um, so anyway, there's some some interaction there uh, to be studied as well in terms of what the effect of the bats is on the, the plants. Yeah, um, for sure. All right. All right. Well, um, so I guess our, our usual end of show announcements we have uh some stuff available shirts mugs the likes at uh store.darkhorsepodcast.org you can join either of our patreons uh for access to the discord server uh which among other things we take one question a week from uh people voting on them on the discord server and um, you can also get access to the once monthly uh, private Q&A at my Patreon and access to some um, more intimate yet conversations that Brett has uh, on his. What else? Um, email darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com for any logistical questions, like how do you ask questions um, uh, for us to answer in the second hour, although we'll say it right now. It's through, for now, it's through Super Chat. Uh, on on YouTube, uh, we were supposed to have our next meeting to move forward our other plan, but our power was out for almost a day in the middle of this week due to that storm, so uh, we had to delay that. Um, and what else? We'll be back for those of you listening in a week, and for those of you watching, if you have the interest and wherewithal in about 15 minutes. All right, be well, everyone. We'll see you shortly. <laughs>